Welcome to Bending the Arc, a podcast series that explores the everyday work of creating inclusive, equitable, and racially just communities. I'm Mark Joseph, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I host and produce this podcast along with my colleagues at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities at Case Western Reserve University. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Clinton Boyd Jr., a postdoctoral associate at the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Dr. Boyd is a rising young scholar who's building an expertise on the subject of black fathers. When Amy Carr and I put out the call for essays a few years ago for our edited volume on mixed income communities, our biggest hope was to find some new, fresh voices in the field, and particularly to find some new voices of African-Americans and other people of color. So we were thrilled when Clinton proposed to co-author an essay exploring the challenges and opportunities for black fathers in mixed income communities. And I'm very pleased to have this conversation to delve deeper into his ideas about black fatherhood. Dr. Clinton Boyd Jr., welcome to Bending the Arc. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. That's great to have you. I appreciate you taking the time. So let's start out by hearing a little bit about your current work at Duke University. You're a postdoctoral associate in the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. So tell us a little bit, what are you focusing on these days? Well, just to start, I think it'd be good for the listening audience to know a little bit more about the Cook Center more broadly and how my work kind of folds underneath the four branches of work that we are currently um, producing that are in the areas of class, wealth, and social mobility. Um, uh, A piece of our work also deals with education and training, um, employment, and just promoting health and well-being. And so in the context of my work, um, it has everything to do with father engagement, specifically among Black males. And I tend to take a life course approach to my work because I'm very interested in knowing how the life course events of Black men shape their fatherhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And so from there, I also spend a lot of time trying to connect the dots between father involvement and engagement and early childhood development, uh, because I feel that that's a unique um, window of opportunity in the fatherhood space that has not received the appropriate level of attention to date. Um, so in terms of my fatherhood work, that's what I'm doing. But I think it'll also be missed upon me if I did not acknowledge that my work has kind of been e- evolving over the last year or so, mm-hmm. um, mainly because when you're at the Cook Center, which is under the direction and leadership of William Sandy Darity, mm-hmm. it's really hard for you to get away from the topic of wealth inequality. (laughs) Um, And and so with that being said, I have a colleague at the Cook Center who is our in-house film maker. He has a documentary series called The Shame of Chicago that he's currently producing. And one of the episodes deals specifically with the origins of the modern day racial wealth gap um, in Chicago. And so over the past year, we've basically been hosting film screenings and having Q&A sessions afterwards. 
And so I've basically been contributing to those conversations and finding ways to connect my fatherhood work to it. Wonderful. Well, you mentioned Dr. Darity, who clearly is one of the giants in our time, my thought <laughs> leaders. Uh, and so I can yeah. just imagine how exciting it is for you to be studying uh, with him and, and with his colleagues, and especially in this moment in our country. And for those who aren't familiar with the work of Dr. Darity or the work of the Cook Center, we encourage our listeners to, to check them out, uh, particularly as the topic of reparations is getting broad, serious uh, policy attention. Uh, Dr. Darity is one of the leading voices uh, for that issue. But coming back to your work, we wanted you on the podcast because you co-authored an essay for our What Works volume with one of my longtime friends and colleagues, Dr. Deidre Oakley of Georgia State University. So your essay was titled, Untapped Assets, Developing a Strategy to Empower Black Fathers in Mixed-Income Communities. And you opened that essay with a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, and here's the quote. Throughout history, the powers of single black men flash here and there like falling stars and die, sometimes before the world has rightly gauged their brightness. And I just wondered what it was about that quote that you particularly like. Yeah, uh, aside from W.E.B. Du Bois being one of my intellectual idols, um, you know, it was very apparent to me upon reading that sentence in The Souls of Black Folk that, you know, historically, Black men have not been properly valued within American society. And as a result of that, um, it contributes to this larger deficit narrative that is unduly attached to Black men. And it also speaks to the inherent strengths and quote unquote powers that we have as Black men that can really be leveraged as assets, not only to um, our children, families, and communities, but quite frankly, to the world writ large. And, you know, from, from my vantage point, as somebody who has become more of a historian over the past year or so, it's been a lot easier for me to connect the dots in terms of the ways in which Black men have been grossly mistreated um, since our westerly journey here to the Americas. And so again, I just think this quote really um, aptly describes much of what Black men have been experiencing here in America today. It's interesting, as I was reflecting on this quote and thought about some of these words, the powers of Black men, the brightness of black men. And mm -hmm. right. my instinct was to agree with you like, yeah, when do we ever have conversations about the brightness of black men in the society? But then I also thought, well, you know, there's a couple of, of arenas, namely sports and entertainment, mm -hmm. where right. black men become like idolized and put on a pedestal for their athletic prowess or their entertainment power. So on the one hand, you've got this undervaluing of black men. On the mm -hmm. other hand, you've got this maybe overvaluing for mm -hmm. one characteristic of black men that drives mm -hmm. incredible amounts of business and industry and commerce right. and, and activity in, these, in this country. So I wonder, how do, you, 
how do you sort that out? Like on the one hand, black men are undervalued. On the other hand, they're idolized. So where do you go with that? Well, yeah, you actually bring up a very valid point, and it's something that I've been thinking about um, more intimately in the aftermath of the public execution of George Floyd. And, and, I, and I reference that because I think about who have become some of the, the race representatives within the Black community. And I think a great deal about our entertainers and athletes, specifically Black men, who may have a great deal of notoriety. Um, but a lot of that notoriety is really tied up in the exploitation of Black bodies. And when I think about, you know, the ways in which our powers are not fully utilized, I think it can be said from a more intellectual standpoint um, that many of our intellectual leaders who have really been the radical and revolutionary voices within our community, there's a tendency for us to listen to them once they are no longer no longer among us in a physical form, um, only for us to recognize and appreciate all of the valuable insights they were trying to bring into the world because they really wanted us to have a um, a place in civilized society that was going to treat us with our God-given humanity. And so again, just tie, tying that back to this quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, um, I'm really unpacking his words from the standpoint of Black men having powers and abilities and capabilities to build um, kingdoms of greatness. But unfortunately, when you are operating within a society that does not even value your humanity, it makes it very difficult for Black men to fully walk into that greatness that I believe is divinely ordained. Well, just to explore this one step further, many listeners will know that, you know, this summer during the NBA playoffs, there was an interesting moment where the kind of voice and agency and power of black male athletes in the NBA um, kind of came to the fore. And it was the evening of the killing of or shooting of Jacob Blake uh, right, up in right, Kenosha. Right. And the uh, Milwaukee Bucks were supposed to play that night and decided not to take the court. And as listeners will recall, that ended up uh, leading to a full boycott and, and halt of play in the middle of the NBA playoffs. What was interesting about that was it was the demonstration of, I think, the mm -hmm. type of power and agency that you're talking about. But it didn't last. Right. It kind of right. had it had a major impact, I would say, draw drew a lot of attention. And then you saw it rippling out through sports. You saw mm -hmm. other athletes also refusing to play. Um, and then a lot of uncertainty for a period of a few days about what would happen. Is this the end of the season? Would they continue? And then they did end up continuing the playoffs. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes, what kind of conversations. In fact, mm -hmm. I understand that. Uh, Former President Barack Obama was involved in a phone call to some of the players to kind of right. talk with them about what they were going to do. So I don't know. It, in a way, it almost feels like uh, that loop was never closed. Mm -hmm. What exactly did that ultimately accomplish? It got attention in the moment. 
I don't know that it's translated into anything specifically. And we've had additional shootings and killings since then. So clearly Mm -hmm. their concern that it had been enough, like no more, um, certainly didn't take effect. So anyway, I'm curious, any thoughts that you have around that particular stance that the players took and then the fact that they actually went back and ended up playing? Yeah, from from my vantage point, it definitely demonstrates the power that we have to advocate for self, um, to really bring much needed attention to our plight, our issues, many of which are longstanding and endemic, unfortunately, here in America. Um, but it, it it shows our ability to get the forces of power within our country to listen to our demands. Um, And this segment of the Black community, if we're talking about Black athletes, specifically Black male athletes, have a great deal of sway and influence um, over many of our monetary systems here in the country. Um, But I do think that we also have to acknowledge that our professional athletes, while some of them may be um, hyper aware about the the sensitivity of these issues, they are not the trained subject matter experts on the topic. And I think in that moment, they could have potentially leveraged their power and influence to ensure that somebody like a Mark Joseph is brought into the conversation. Somebody like a William Sandy Darity is brought into the conversation to ensure that it's, you know, some of our other towering, you know, intellectual figures who have studied these issues and not just studied them, but have put together thoughtful policy prescriptions to these issues that can lead to st- systemic and structural change. That should have been, in my opinion, like the, the next step. Um, and saying until you all are willing and you all being uh, the powers that be are willing to take our um, demands seriously, we have absolutely no problem sitting out another game and another game and another game. Because the fact of the matter is, this is simply a, a, another saga in a sad story. Because as you mentioned, when Jacob Blake was um, shot several times and the NBA players specifically and other professional athletes kind of stopped business as usual and went back to work, we had incidents that followed. Um, So again, we really need to put pressure on folks to get them to understand that we are very serious about what we're advocating for, but it also means that we have to come together within our community and again, rightly um, gauge the brightness of everything that black men in particular have to offer because we all do great things that may not necessarily um, be connected to the next, but it's still valuable to what we want to achieve collectively. Let's get back to your focus, which is Black Fathers. And I'm curious, how did you land on that as the topic you wanted to dedicate your research career uh, to focusing on? 
Well, starting out, honestly, um, and I think I may have had this conversation with you offline, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I had my first child at the tender age of 15. Mm -hmm. So I was a teenage father. Mm -hmm. Um, And while and just to put it in more context, I was 16 when my daughter was born. However, I was 15 when I knew I was about to begin this journey of becoming a parent. And it was in that moment at the age of 15 when I started to do the identity work around what it was going to mean to be a father and a young father. And for me, I say at the age of 15 is when I became a teenage father, although my daughter was not born until I was 16. And so just having those unique set of experiences as a young father um, growing up in inner city Chicago, where I would accompany my daughter's mother, who was my girlfriend at the time, to all of the prenatal visits, um, only to be in the doctor's office and to feel as if I wasn't even being recognized Mm. by any of the health Mm. professionals. And then to only... Um, have that followed up by the subtle messages that I would receive about my inability and unwillingness to be a father. Um, And so for me, it just really opened my eyes to the ways in which not only a father like myself, but perhaps other men have been marginalized within these systems of support that are really one-sided in nature if we're thinking about it from a parental um, engagement standpoint. And so I kind of knew being at the age of 15 and 16 that I wanted to do something about it. I just didn't know what exactly. And then fast forward to some work that I was doing at a Chicago-based nonprofit immediately out of undergrad. Um, the, the nonprofit's name was Family Focus, and they had a Lawndale site. I was a co-facilitator for a father support group called Mission Men, and we basically had a working partnership with a Chicago-based agency called the Safer Foundation that does a lot of work with returning citizens. So all of our fathers were coming from the Safer Foundation, and many of these men were either trying to establish, like reestablish connections with their children because they had been in prison for an extended period of time. And in some instances, you have fathers who were trying to uh, like um, establish relationships with kids that they had never seen throughout their life because their prison stint was so long. And so working with these men and hearing more about their daily stories and adversities and, um, and also the notable triumphs they've had throughout their life courses, throughout their experiences as fathers, it deeply resonated with me. But soon as we graduated one cohort of fathers, another cohort was coming right through the door with the same set of challenges and issues. And it really helped me to understand that um, this is not an issue of quote unquote bad people. We likely have some bad policies and procedures in place. So let me, try and explore ways to be a part of the solution opposed to being a part of the problem. And from there, I just, you know, applied to my PhD program, spent six years in Atlanta, Georgia State working towards that. And I've just dedicated my life's work to serving Black men and fathers for professional and personal reasons. 
and I believe you've now got two little ones. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. How old so are they now? I have a, yeah, I had so my daughter, she just made 15 and she's a sophomore in high school. Wow. Um, and that's my big baby. But then I also have my little baby, who is my son, who just turned one um, last Friday. And so it's been an absolute pleasure to um, restart this yeah. this 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 journey <laughs> as a father, um, especially having a, a son who I plan to devote all of my time, energy, and love into so he can hopefully um, be a far greater man than I will eventually become when it's all said and done for me. So I want to stay with the personal for a moment. Uh, definitely want to get into your research in a second. But this topic of black fatherhood and the walk of black men as fathers is such a heavy one. and. You know, you've called fatherhood in your writing um, an incredibly complex social institution. In fact, I think that was a talk um, that you had given, uh, incredibly mm -hmm. complex social institution. And when I heard you say that, I just reflected on how true that is in my own life, thinking about uh, my walk as a black father, my relationship with my father. Uh, my father had a hugely positive impact on my life through all he did in his own career as a, an academic and a social activist and, and how he provided for our family. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, my father walked a extremely tortured path uh, in America as a black man, as an immigrant, as an African-American. And he and I have actually been estranged for several years now uh, due to the unhealthy dynamics in our own relationship. And I think a lot of that is due to some root causes in his own kind of pain and challenges uh, and feelings of uh, marginalization in this, this country, in this society. So fatherhood, as I said, is a heavy topic. And I'm wondering for you, as you kind of enter into this area of work, were you bringing that sense as well, that it was that heavy? What kind of experience had you had with uh, being fathered? Yeah, I'll be, you know, frank with you, Mark. And I know there's a tendency within the research sciences to say we should shy away from having our personal experiences kind of shape our vision of our work because it's not objective. Um, but for me, so much of my work is influenced by my personal experience. And when I think about my own personal relationship with my father, similar to yours, my dad has had an extremely um, positive impact on my life. However, my dad is perfectly imperfect. And mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with um, some of what he lacked from his own biological father growing up as a child. And so I think it's a it's an intergenerational conversation we really need to have around what it, does it mean across the board, regardless of race, to be a father, you know, especially in America. But I think it's something that can be uniquely said about what it may mean to be a father and, and Black America. And that is definitely the case for me, because even just centering my own story a little bit more, you know, I have a wonderful relationship with both of my children. I'm actively involved in their lives. And, and I use actively involved 
in the broadest sense of the phrase, you know, just not financially, but socially, emotionally, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I'm a long distance dad, you know, I'm in North Carolina, my daughter is in Chicago, and then my son is in Atlanta. Now, do I fit the traditional mode of what we say a father is supposed to be in America? Absolutely not. And, and, and some may expect for me to fit that mold because I'm somebody who studies the subject matter. I'm somebody who represents the Black aristocracy. You know, like I'm somebody who represents the emerging Black middle class, but that's just not my story. And I've come to accept that and embrace it for what it is because it lets me know that moving forward, there will be opportunities for me to do things a little bit differently. Um, but it also kind of builds on what my own father's experience was with his children. And so my dad, you know, took a primary responsibility for raising me. Um, but I also have siblings who uh, grew up in Alabama, you know, while my father was in Illinois and just watching my dad as a kid, you know, really do everything in his power to be there for my siblings. It really helped to shape my understanding of what it was going to mean to be a father when I came of age. And it's taken me some time to kind of put that in perspective. But you know, the ways in which I, I go above and beyond for my kids is really no different than what my dad did for his children. But there is also a sense of pain associated with that when you feel as if you could be doing more, but you but you're not. And in that way, I think me and my dad definitely have some things in common because we 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 both have dealt with this internal conflict around not being there for our kids the ways that we know that they want us there and that's in an everyday sense um like just to be physically present um to have direct access to your kids etc um and while things may have half for my father or for myself be turning out you know to be quite all right it doesn't change the fact that you have your own set of emotions tied up in it that, you know, you often have to try and find ways to reconcile. I really appreciate your point about how intergenerational this is and these patterns get handed on down from generation to generation. Uh, I heard the energy in your voice when you talked about your son and the relationship you want to have with that one year old. And uh, right. I'm blessed with three children, a daughter and two sons. and there absolutely has been a very particular conversation with my boys about the intergenerational pattern in my own family mm -hmm. and the way in which my father's relationship with his father, his father's relationship with his father, and really what we were going to do between myself and my boys intentionally to set a different kind of pattern right. and to not just replicate either consciously, subconsciously, you know, what has been implanted, those dynamics that have, have kind of been passed down. Let me shift to your work a little bit. One of the hallmarks of your research is you talk about uh, what you've called the many faces of fatherhood. 
the range of ways to be a father or a father figure that is not just one way. And in fact, you have kind of like a typology you break down. Like there's these different kinds of father relationships we should be thinking about. They may overlap in some cases. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but it's a way to think more incisively about the role of black fathers. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the many faces of fatherhood for a moment. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And thanks for the question. Um, when first, I just want to say that, you know, even when I think about um, the, the many faces of fatherhood, um, much of my thinking about the internal diversity that exists within that category of, uh, of, of, of parents being fathers really builds on the work of like the L. Youngs, the Waldo Johnsons, the Armand Perrys, the David Pates, the Ron Menzies, et cetera. Um, as a fatherhood scholar, I really take pride in um, walking in the footsteps of those um, towering intellectual giants that came before me, especially those who are black men, mm -hmm. um, because on a personal level, it just means a great deal to me. And so be, because of the work that they've done in this space, it really helped me to appreciate the, the, the many types of fathers that, fa that children um, can potentially have access to throughout the, the range of their life course development. And so I think about this in terms of like the more traditional residential fathers who would, you know, fall in the category of being like a married, uh, a married father, you know, a father who may be cohabitating, just staying in the household with their child and their child's mother, um, but there is no formal union in place. And, you know, you can also think about some resident fathers can either be the biological father or depending on if the biological father is not around on a daily basis, at least within the household, that could have created an opening or an opportunity for a stepfather to, to enter in and to fill that void. Um, and, and, and then from there, you know, you have non-resident fathers, which is a category of fathers that much of the research literature has tended to focus on, um, primarily from like a family policy standpoint, especially when you explore like the origins of like child support policy here in America. Um, there was this, quite frankly, erroneous notion that emerged that said if a father was not in the household, then he was a bad father or he wasn't actively engaged in the life of his child or his children. And so there was a tendency to conflate um, um, non-residency with non-involvement. Mm. And because of a lot of the work by the scholars who I named previously, they've kind of helped to challenge that um, dominant perspective. And so again, from a standpoint of like non-resident fatherhood, there's a bunch of research literature in that space that uh, for anybody in the listening audience, they can, you know, go find it and become more enlightened on the topic. And then you have another strand of fathers who I feel really don't receive that much attention. And those are social fathers. And when I say social fathers, I'm referring to those fathers who have a, again, a social rather than biological tie to their children. 
And these could be those father figures um, that are really uh, in positions to be of great benefit to the overall development of the child. Beautiful. Let me jump into the one of the programs I know you've worked on because I want to kind of delve into that a bit. And then we can come back to some of these issues of fathering and father figures and father roles. But I know there's a program called Dads to Kids, or the right. short is Dad 2K. Uh, and uh, I'd love you to tell the audience a little bit about that program, uh, kind of how it works, and then really what's been emerging from that as far as policy implications or practice implications, uh, you know, what we can do as a society to be more supportive of black fathers mm-hmm. in their roles. So tell us about Dad's 2K. Just to start, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge Dr. Shannon Self Brown, who is a professor in the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. She uh, was the principal investigator for the Dead to Kids research study, and she allowed me to um, join her as that project unfolded over the span of like four to five years um, as as a graduate research assistant. This was a project that I worked on during my time at Georgia State. And in short, you know, Dead2K was essentially an adaptation to a fairly popular home visiting model called Safe Care. Um, and for those of you in the listening audience, you know, who may not be as familiar with home visitation programs, it's essentially a service delivery strategy um, that works directly with parents, typically mothers and their young children, and to to help bring them up to speed with what they can expect um, as a new parent of a young child, and basically trying to find ways to thoughtfully improve the infant's health alongside um, the mother's health. And so Dad2K really was trying to replicate success that we have seen in certain um, home visiting programs that were specific to mothers um, and make them applicable to working directly with fathers. And so it was the way that it was initially designed, you know, you had a home visitor who was a trained clinician of sort who went directly into the household and worked with the fathers over the span of six to eight weeks. Um, in a couple of key areas, mainly because we wanted to help them to understand how their parents and practices, if positive in nature, can help to improve the um, developmental outcomes for their young children. And so in addition to having a home visitor work directly with the fathers, we also um, had the home visitors bring tablets into the household so the fathers can receive some supplementary information about what it meant to employ positive parenting strategies with their children through this whole virtual model. And so the the program, um, unfortunately, but I use, I place unfortunately in quotes, unfortunately, it didn't demonstrate uh, to have an impact per se on improving um, outcomes for fathers, but a part of that had to do with 
the fact that many of the measurement instruments that we used were not necessarily built or designed with fathers in mind. And so one of the things that we discovered is that um, some of what we were asking fathers was not relevant to their experiences as fathers um, and what we learned. And that's what we took away from it quantitatively, but qualitatively, the fathers really saw value in the program and they really wanted to take the program to the next level. They really appreciated the parenting skills that they learned as a result of them being a willing participant in the program. And I think this is one of those key ways in which qualitative research can be a wonderful complement to quantitative research because they have distinct objectives. And in this case, what we got from the qualitative data really let us know that the program was not a complete watch. It was actually something of value from the perspective of fathers. And you talked about the outcomes, the measured outcomes quantitatively on fathers. Was this, were you measuring outcomes on fathers and on children or just on fathers in this particular study? Yeah, unfortunately, it was the former and not the latter. Mm. Um, and, and that's something that we have discussed and something I've discussed in my own um, writing on the topic is that in order to move this work forward, it will definitely be beneficial to us to be able to capture um, the information on the program's effectiveness, not only for fathers, but doing a better job and connecting that to the outcomes of children. Because in essence, home visitation programs are two generation programs mm -hmm. um, because we want to not only work with the parent, but also the child or the children. And if we can find ways to um, demonstrate overall program effectiveness for both intended um, beneficiaries of the program, it'll ultimately allow us to craft a more um, well-intentioned and well-designed program that is going to be beneficial to all parties involved. Yeah, I'd love to hear your kind of current thinking about that when you talk about what it would take to craft like a fully comprehensive strategic program to support fathers, support their kids. I guess, what, what did you learn even from this early effort with Dads 2K about what you think is key? What are the key ingredients of a program like that? You've mentioned the home visiting, but more specifically, what needs to be happening? What kind of information? What kinds of activities? What, what would be the ingredients of your ideal program? Yeah, uh, for, for me, even when I reflect on the essay that I um, put together for you and Amy's edited volume, much of what I put together programmatically was informed by the work I was doing with Dad2K. So it's not just that the fathers would benefit from this home visitation program. Other aspects of the data suggested that the fathers really would like to have opportunities to connect with other fathers who may be experiencing similar um, life challenges because they want to be a part of a network of support. Um, and so for me, I think about this work as having something that is father-centered and um, family-focused. 
And what I mean by that, especially with my work with Black fathers, it would be good to have programs that are culturally grounded, um, gender sensitive, and age appropriate. And when I mean culturally grounded, I mean really identifying those attributes that are inherent within Black families that can be used as um, as assets for us to think about how we move this work forward. And so, for example, you know, this was a two-generation program, but every time I went into the household, I was engaged in the entire family. And so it wasn't just that I was working with, with dad trying to teach him these skills. You know, great grandma could have been in the house and wanted to know what we had going on. You know, you had active, um, and and supportive aunties and uncles who were also in and out the household who valued the, the 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 knowledge and the insight we were imparting on the fathers and at times they expressed interest in what um, what they could do to help support the overall development of the young child and when I think about the really communal. Um, aspect of parenting it takes place within African-American communities. I really believe that fatherhood programs that are moving aggressively towards working with Black fathers have to think more broadly about what it means to engage fathers and their families, because in many instances, it's not just the, the father and the mother and the child. It's a whole network of support that is typically wrapped around that family. And so part of my thinking on the topic is we need programs that are more comprehensive in nature and also programs that account for the ages of fathers, because depending on the age of a father, that's going to let us know what type of distinct or unique challenges they may um, be trying to overcome in that moment. And once we've identified those distinct challenges, we can then identify the necessary resources that can be leveraged to help them achieve whatever their parenting goals may be. Can you think of anything else unexpected that emerged either from the Dad's 2K work or your other fatherhood research and practice? You know, one of them is this reality about the the communal nature, uh, multi-generational nature of parenting. And so how do you think about a program that can actually engage effectively everyone in the household? But other things that emerged that were kind of unexpected? I mean, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and this kind of speaks to another aspect of my, um, my work as it's currently evolving. I, many of these men were well aware of the systems of oppression that were actively working against them. And not only did they demonstrate their level of awareness around how they were being mistreated by public systems and institutions, they often had um, thoughtful recommendations about what could be done to eradicate these ills. And keep in mind, these were individuals who we would consider not to be um, lettered, like yourself and, and, and me. Like they're not doctors um, in the sense that they went to 
college institutions or academic institutions, but they have a PhD in real life. Um, you, you know, they, they, they have walked the walk and talked the talk and they've been chewed up by society, spit out and forced to restart on their, on their, on their life's journey. And in many cases, these men had wisdom um, that they were sitting on that was really helping them inform their thinking on the subject um, of like systemic oppression and things of that nature. And it really got me thinking that these are also men who can be leveraged if we properly recognize their voices and the agency that they bring to the table to really um, dismantle systems of oppression. And that's the one thing that I haven't necessarily seen fully represented in some of the, the, the fatherhood work that has taken place over the last several decades, because it's been this attention devoted to responsible fatherhood, which places the onus on the individual. But what about having conversations about responsible policies? Um, and I think the voices of these men, again, if properly leveraged, can be a powerful tool in our arsenal to bring about the necessary change. Well, this is a great time to remind our audience the title of your essay, uh, your and Dr. Oakley's essay that was in our volume, Untapped Assets, Developing a Strategy to Empower Black Fathers in Mixed-Income Communities. And I'd love to just touch on that briefly, and you started to go there, right? This point, not only about what's happening inside the household, but what's happening as far as black fathers' role in the community and the ways that they could have and are having voice and influence in their community, and then in the other direction, the ways in which communities can either support their role as black fathers or impede their role as black fathers. And, and one of the things you trace in your essay is kind of the history of public policy around fathers, low-income fathers, low-income fathers of color uh, in public housing, in subsidized housing, in government programs, and the way that government programs, and you touched on this earlier, have often uh, pushed fathers to the side right? and in some ways set up a situation where fathers were either explicitly excluded or unwelcome or implicitly seen as unwelcome. So I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to where we are as far as how black fathers are seen at a community level and then where you think we need to go. Yeah, you, you summed it up quite nicely. Uh, and I'm glad to know that our thinking is similar on the topic because quite frankly, that is what the, the issue has been historically, especially if we just narrow our focus to housing policy in this country. There has been what I call intentional exclusion of Black men from households, especially if those households were receiving any form of government assistance. And you just think about the type of dynamic that sets up in a family when you have a father who wants to be in the household and his partner wants him to be in the household. 
and the child wants him to be in the household, but our policies are not structured in a way that allows for those men to actively exist in those residential dwellings, it really makes for a situation that does not benefit any party involved. And you couple that with this, this narrative that is so persistent and longstanding within America that Black fathers do not want to be involved in the lives of their children. It's this whole flawed notion of the dead beat dead. And while in the phrase, there's no explicit reference to Black men, when you think about it implicitly, it's no secret who the powers that be are actually referring to. And you kind of see that unfold throughout much of the research literature, especially when we drill down on you know, I think about like the, the 1980s, for example, when we start having these conversations about the underclass and um, we had unprecedented waves of violence um, occurring within black and brown communities, which was the result of like mass unemployment, you know, not because these individuals are inherently violent. That violence was a symptom of a larger societal breakdown. And Black men were typically scapegoated in that process. And when you focus specifically on what that meant for those Black men who were, who were fathers of father figures, it was another insidious narrative that got attached to them that they really don't have the ability or willingness to be actively engaged in the lives of their children. And our policies have kind of Ain't not kind of how our policies have really just not in our housing policy specifically have not really created created a welcoming atmosphere for black men to exist within those dwellings, especially if they've had some interaction with the criminal justice system. That's a whole nother set of issues once they become in, involved in in that punitive system. You know, we're at a moment in our society where the, the notion of centering blackness, really focusing on the issues faced by black people, by African-Americans in particular, uh, is gaining more space in the kind of public policy dialogue. Uh, but it's a controversial one because there are those who would say, well, yes, black people have specific issues. Uh, they're dealing with the residual realities hundreds of years worth since slavery and Jim Crow and continued discrimination. But on the other hand, there are other groups who are marginalized as well. There are other people of color who are marginalized as well. Clearly in your own work, uh, you've been unapologetic. You've had no issue in kind of focusing on black fatherhood, uh, I think for, for legitimate reasons. I'm curious how you think about that though and how you think about your work and its relevance to um, fathers in general of any race. Uh, mm -hmm. It's relevant, certainly, to other fathers of color. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, again, for me, because my work is deeply personal, it informs how I approach it professionally. And just because of my lived experiences as a Black father, I feel as if 
it is perhaps my calling to to do work in this space and I think about that also in the context of the moment that we are in right now when there has been this much needed discussion about centering blackness because we quite frankly are at this moment today because of the anti-black racism that again is long-standing here in America. Part of the reason why the country, the nation, or the world was completely outraged by that public execution of George Floyd is because it was eerily um, similar to the public lynchings that took place during Jim Crow. Uh, it produced the same type of emotional response within the Black community. It, 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 it tapped this more um, ex explicit form of racism that was alive and highly prevalent again during the institution of slavery and Jim Crow that really challenged the 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 whole notion of us making progress on a racial front here in America. And for me, I think because that is a part of our legacy as a country, we should also do everything in our power to ensure that we are having discussions that deal with the historical specificity. Because again, the racism of today looks different from the racism of yesterday, but it's still racial oppression that is having a deleterious impact on Black communities, but also on Brown communities. And this kind of ties into the second aspect of your question, um, because the racial oppression that we experience as Black people in America has the same type of effect on other groups that have been marginalized along the lines of race. And there's also a, a long and storied history when you explore the ways in which our Latinx um, brothers and sisters have been marginalized. If you think about the indigenous people of this country, they have their own historical um, experience along the lines of racial oppression. And because we all come to the table as marginalized groups, we have something in common. And because we have this one thing in common, it allows us to connect along our pain points that are intergenerational in nature. And I think that's been one of the beauties coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement, especially over the last several months. You really saw um, a, a, a sea of diversely beautiful faces really out here advocating for the type of change that needs to occur within this country on a racial front. And so while my work definitely prioritizes um, Black men and Black fathers and the Black community, that in no way suggests that I'm disconnecting my oppression from the oppression of my brothers and sisters who have also been marginalized here in America. If anything, we have to um, devise ways to unite arms in unity so we can really 
throw the architect of oppression off our back. Well, Clinton, let me uh, wrap us up here uh, with one final question. And uh, it's the way we like to end our podcast conversation. So this podcast is called Bending the Arc because we believe it's really up to each of us uh, to bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice. And so we're asking our guests to reflect on a couple of action steps that they would leave our audience with. One action step that is focused on themselves, so something that you personally would commit to as an action step moving forward, and then one action step that they would ask uh, our listeners to think about, what they would hope that others would consider. And really, as you think about this topic of of Black fathers, um, what's an action step for yourself, and what's something that you would suggest for others? Yeah, for, for, for myself, you know, one of the things that I've been confronted with over the past several months is my own personal connection to the moment that we're in now. Um, Just because of my lived, not only because of my lived experiences, but because of a lot of the professional opportunities I've had along the way. And so for me personally, I just know that I plan to become a more disciplined um, individual across the board, you know, disciplined from a physical standpoint to make sure that I'm in the best um, possible health, disciplined from an emotional standpoint, making sure that I routinely have my counseling sessions with my my personal therapist. Um, From a spiritual standpoint, making sure that I'm disciplined by continuing to feed on the word of God. Um, And, you know, just showing up and showing out. So when I have these opportunities to really have my voice heard, that hopefully the insights and the knowledge that I I, I share will be received warmly and receptively by the folks who I'm engaged in dialogue with, and hopefully it will never fall on deaf ears. And, and, And in order for that to happen, I have to become more of a student of history as well. And that's one of the things I definitely tell Sandy whenever I have an opportunity to talk with him, um, that he has definitely made me more of an American and African-American historian. And when I have that knowledge at my disposal, it allows me to um, better appreciate the moments that we are currently in. And just in terms of like my collective action steps for others, I would just encourage folks to continue to organize um, within their communities of support, within their communities of influence, within their communities of compassion, and that compassion that they have in their hearts for other people, because that is really where we need to go as a collective. We have to care about our fellow man and woman the same way that we care about ourselves, the ways in which we care about our communities, the ways in which we care about our children. We really have to see each other as all of God's children. 
And until we can get to that point, we are really going to be confronting this perpetually um, fatalistic uphill battle that has come to define America. When we think about the election that we just came out of, this was definitely a victory um, for those of us who value democracy, but it was a victory because we were on the brink of losing democracy. This was a victory that allowed us to stave off a fascist regime. But what we also have to acknowledge from an anti-racist perspective, from a racial equity perspective, that democracy in America has only worked for a privileged few. And we cannot lose sight of that because we got a favorable outcome during this election. Because if we get lulled back to sleep, we can easily find ourselves in the same position in the coming years because we know that that element of America is among us. Beautifully stated, my friend, beautifully stated. Listen, Clinton, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. Thank you for your work. I, I particularly appreciated how often in this conversation you acknowledged uh, your mentors and your role models and the scholars who have paved the path that you're following. Um, I think that bodes incredibly well for your own path that you are uh, drawing on mentors, uh, but also seeing where you can kind of shape your own contribution moving forward. So uh, I hope that the listeners will be watching along with me, your career uh, going forward. You're going to be hearing the name Dr. Clinton Boyd Jr. Uh, in the years to come. So good luck to you. And again, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. And kudos again to you and Amy for really producing a, a standout volume. I can only imagine what it was like to, 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 to not only have this thought in your mind, but to actually bring it out into the world. And you all definitely did a marvelous job. And, uh, you know, my hats goes off to the many supporters who helped to produce this edited volume. And also a special shout out to my uh, mentor, Dr. Deirdre Oakley, because without her, um, I wouldn't have his PhD. <laughs> she signed off on my paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you to you and Deidre for being a part of it. And uh, we'll be keeping an eye on your work. Okay, thanks. Many thanks to Dr. Clinton Boyd Jr. for joining me for this episode of Bending the Arc. His essay on Black Fathers is just one of almost 40 essays in our volume on mixed income communities, available for your reading pleasure online. You can find them on our website at nimc.case.edu. Our podcast is produced and edited by Davey Barris from Case Western Reserve University's Media Vision. Funding for this podcast series was provided by the Ford Foundation, and funding for the What Works volume was provided by the Kresge Foundation. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. And we hope you will join us for future episodes. Until then, keep doing your part to bend the arc.